Now, I should have known better than to drive 60 miles per hour in a blizzard with very limited visibility, but I didn't. And that wasn't the only thing I should have known better then. But one day I found myself driving to Florida from Virginia to see Brianna because she was student teaching. Um, at that point, we were engaged, and so I was driving down and wanted to see her. And I should have known better. Um, I should have known to check the weather before I left, um, but I never really checked the weather. So I woke up like it was any other day and then was surprised when it was snowing as I drove um, because I left late because I wasn't worried about anything. But then I checked the weather and realized, okay, so there's a blizzard coming, but I was right, I'm in the middle of South Carolina and I realized I'm kind of on the edge of this. So I think if I can just keep going and, and I make sure that, that this is okay, I should be able to get on the other side because it's, it's going north and I'm going south, so this should be okay. And, you know, I'm from Nebraska, right? So I grew up in snow. I drove on two feet of snow going to school when I was 16. I'm experienced. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to be fine. And so that's where I find myself going 60 miles an hour on the interstate. And, you know, these semi-trucks are really slowing down, but I think I know better. And so I decide I'm going to start, I'm going to pass them so I can, I, I got to get on the other side of this so I can get there. And so to the surprise of absolutely none of you, um, I find myself spinning out of control um, on the interstate over on the median and crash my car because um, you shouldn't drive 60 miles per hour in a blizzard. That's pretty dumb. But by the grace of God, I was fine and I should have known better than to go ahead and, and call it good and get a hotel and stop for the night. Um, but the car was fine and it took a while, you know, for them to tow me out and so then I was good so I kept going. And then I should have known better to stop, but I didn't, so I wrecked my car again. But that time, even though I was driving much slower, I blew both of my tires and tore apart my hood. And now my car actually needed to be fixed. And so then I actually had to, to stop. Now, maybe you've not made a mistake as foolish as those several mistakes all in a row like that, but I'm willing to bet that all of you have things that, you know, you should know better than to do that, and yet you find yourself doing it once again. Should have known better than to bring up that topic around that person because you knew what was going to happen, but you did it. You should have known better, but yet there you are. We're going to look this morning at the story of a man who also should have known better in Daniel chapter 5, but he did not. And his name was Belshazzar. And what we find here in this is this is also, you know, where the phrase, you, know, you should have seen the writing on the wall originates from. It's the story of somebody who should have known better and who should have learned and yet didn't and had to pay a high cost for it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to um, read all of chapter 5, which is our, our normal habit. And just as a reminder, we, we do this um, because I think that this is the most important part of our service, um, just reading God's Word. Because we're here to worship God, we're here not to hear songs that we like, but to sing to our God, and we're here not to listen to me talk, but to listen to God's Word and to try to understand what it means. And so that's why we read it all the way through, and then I try to explain it. So if you are able, stand with me as we read from Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, 
silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly, Bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be a third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. And the queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father of the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explaining riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel? One of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought into me to read this writing and make known its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be a third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear and or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all are your ways you have not honored." Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him. He should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being 62 years old. 
grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would reveal your word to us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would open our hearts, open up our ears, help us to hear from you. Lord, would we learn from what you have to say, and would we actually live like we've learned it? And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So our, our first point in your blanks, if you're taking notes in your bulletins, is that we should know not to worship idols. We should know not to worship idols, right? Now, our story, it begins with a bit of a time jump. We've been going through the book of Daniel, you know, chapter by chapter, and we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar for the last four. But in chapter five, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. He's not here anymore, and now there's a new king. So it may make you wonder, wait, what's, what's going on here? But we've got to remember, Daniel is not written to us to be just a, a chronological account of Babylon. It's written to, to tell Daniel and to tell the Israelites how they're supposed to live when they're in exile. So about 20 years have really taken place uh, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And there's probably been a number of kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that have come and gone. And Daniel's no longer young anymore. In chapter 1, he was probably 15, 16, maybe even 14 now he's more likely in his 70s. He's much older. And so in this king, King Belshazzar has a great feast. Verse 1, he makes a great feast for a thousand of his lords. That's not everybody who's attending. That's just the VIPs. There's a thousand of them. And he's drinking wine in front of his thousand. So the wine's flowing at this feast, which it would at any, but it's not just for everybody. It is also the king himself is drinking it. And this is mentioned not just because, you know, he's having a glass when he should be drinking water, but it seems to be that the king is also participating in these great festivities. He's not just drinking a little bit, but he is getting drunk. He is partying along with the rest of them. And this drinking leads to some bad decisions. And two, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought and the king and his wives and lords and concubines might drink from them. So he commands, bring out the cups, the plates, all the utensils that we took from the temple of God in Jerusalem in Israel. And they decide to just use them as part of their, their partying. Now it's enough of a violation to take them from the temple to violate God's place and to take these, these things that should be used for worship of God only by the priests and just drink out of them as if they're your normal party cups. But it gets worse in verse 4. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They take the things of God and they use them in idol worship. So much irony in just in the way that verse is. They take the holy things of God, which are made out of God and silver, and then they worship gods made out of gold and silver. They take the holy things of God, and instead of worshiping the God of rocks, the God who made gold and who made silver with the words of his mouth, they worship gods made out of those things that they themselves made. It's idolatry and it's blasphemous, and they should have known better than to do so. Not just because they had the prophet Daniel in their midst, but because natural revelation should have revealed the foolishness of worshiping rocks and trees and worshiping something that you fashion out of your own hands. That's so often the prophets from Isaiah to Jeremiah warn them and say, how, how dumb are you guys? 
You just made this. You went through all the work all day long, and now you're bowing down and worshiping this thing. We should know better than to do that. But yet so often that's how we sin, is it not? We take the things that should be used for God and we use them for ourselves. Or instead of just receiving them as gifts, we worship them as if they are God. We might read this story and even kid ourselves and see ourselves just in the place of Daniel, bravely standing against all the debauchery around him. But most days during the week where Belshazzar and his thousands worshiping the things of God instead of God. Now maybe you protest and say, well, speak for yourself, pastor. I don't do that. But I think we do. This is kind of the essence of sin and idolatry. Is we, we take what is good and the things that God has gave us and we worship them instead. A good definition of idolatry, or at least that has helped me to see it, is really an idol is anything that you will sin in order to keep it. Or if it gets taken from you, you're going to sin in response to it. Or sin in order to get it back. There, there are many things that we do like this, or we can just take good things God's given us and we worship them. You know, we're created to work have dominion over the world and, and spread the kingdom of God and care for creation and his earth. And so work is a good thing. But then we can twist it and we can become workaholics. We can find our identity in that instead of our identity in God. Or we can begin to sacrifice and sin to work more and more. We take a good thing, we worship it. We worship our stuff. Right? Consumerism is rampant, not just in our country, all over the world. Everything is about what we can get and how fast I can get it. And I can't believe I have to wait three days to get this thing delivered to my house. It should have came here in two days. This is a travesty. And then we begin sinning against everyone around us. We have all these gifts and wonders. It's, it's amazing that we get to live in the time that we do. That's a gift from God. We worship our money and our possessions. We hoard them instead of giving them to those in need. We hold them to all for ourselves. Our very desires, right, as human beings are a gift. The fact that God made us to have desires, to get to feel emotions like love or even hunger and thirst is, is a wonder. That's incredible. God didn't have to do that. That's a great gift that we get to, to feel many of these things. All right, but we can feel those and we can twist those gifts even into God when we start to do anything in order to have our desires fulfilled. When our desires become the, our guiding thing, of, you know, whether sexual or otherwise, when we start to twist it and sacrifice in order to get it, or when we start to say, you know what, it doesn't really matter what God says is or isn't sin because I want this, I feel this, and this really is good because I feel it, therefore it's God, and I should do whatever it asks me to do. Those are just some ways that we can sin against God, and I think we still worship idols today, even though we know better than to do so. Is these gifts from God, they are gifts, but they're not God. Our, our second blank is more the, the key part of the story here. We should know better, or we should know to listen to God's word. We should know to listen to God's word. And, and I mean God's word here for Belshazzar too. It's not just in terms of the Bible, but just all the words that God has spoken. Belshazzar might not have had the book of Daniel written in front of him, but he had the prophet Daniel standing before him. And he had heard the stories and the miracles and the wonder of what God had done in his midst. And all of the ways that God had spoken and showed up. He had heard stories. He should have known better, but he didn't. 
So let's go back to, to the party. Verse 5, everyone's drinking, they're worshiping idols, and immediately the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as he wrote. Something bizarre happens. A disembodied hand appears. Somewhat everyone can see it and it just starts writing. Okay, if that happened, if a hand just popped up right there on the screen and started doing that, I think we would all lose interest in whatever I am saying. Right? That would cause, if you're starting to drift and think about, you know, what else you got going on this day or or the week, it's going to make all of us start to freak out. And that's what happens here, right? It's terrifying. The king's terrified. His color changes. His thoughts alarm him. His limbs give way and his knees start locking together. He's freaked out. And this is really colorful language to describe his physical reaction to this. You know, it's literally actually the joints of his loins were unknotted, which is a fun phrase. You can see why they might have translated it a little differently to be clear. It also it could mean that he lost control of his bowels, And soiled himself. Which makes sense if you saw that. That would be understanding human reaction. It also makes sense if you saw that and you were hammered drunk. As he appears to be. So all of this he calls. He sobers up very quickly. And he calls the enchanters, the Chaldeans, astrologers. And says, hey, whoever can read this and tell me what in the world that means. You're going to be clothed with purple royal colors and a chain of gold. And you're going to get to be third ruler in the kingdom. So they all come in. That's a big reward, right? I, if they weren't already at the party, that sounds good. What, you know what I mean? You know, loosen my knuckles and figure out if I can do this. But none of them can even read the writing, let alone make known to the king the interpretation. And that makes him even more greatly alarmed and his color changes further and his lords are perplexed. No one can figure out what this means. The party has come to a stop. Now, this is the third time in the book of Daniel already in chapter 5 that the wise men can't figure out a problem that the king has. I don't understand why Daniel isn't the first person who's called every time there's something. That should be. That should be the response, and yet it's not. His response is more of worry. The king doesn't go and send for Daniel. The king doesn't even seem to know about Daniel. But so the queen or the queen mother enters the scene, and we don't know exactly who she is. Um, we, I don't think it's Belshazzar's wife. or It it's really could be translated queen or queen mother. It could be his mom. It could even be Nebuchadnezzar's wife because she lived for a while and is still kind of influential. But we do know about her. The only thing we know is that she seemed to at least pay some attention to God and listening to him because she knew it about Daniel. And Belshazzar did not. And so she comes in and she's kind of a foil for Belshazzar because she knows the stories. And she reminds him in verse 11, hey, well, first she says, you know, don't worry, 10. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Why are you freaking out? There's a solution to your problem. 11, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. She's got some information, not all of it. She's still not worshiping the one true God. In the days of your, your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, he made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So don't you remember, Belshazzar? Surely you should have heard of this guy. He was kind of a big deal. It seems like Daniel's not the chief anymore. He's been removed from his position. Maybe he's been, for political reasons, or retired or politely pushed off to the side. Maybe even by Belshazzar himself. We don't know. But she reminds him why he was in charge in the first place. Well, an excellent spirit was in him, knowledge and understanding. He interpreted dreams. He could explain riddles and solve problems. All found in this Daniel. Now let Daniel be called and he will 
show the interpretation. This is kind of a rebuke that she's given. She's saying, hey, Belshazzar, there's a guy who used to be in charge who handled all the problems just like this one. When Nebuchadnezzar had plenty of problems that no one could figure out, he would come in and he solved it right away. Why don't you just call him? He is going to do it once again. And you notice the queen, she even thinks this problem is already solved. She doesn't see any reason to worry. Why? Because she does know better. Belshazzar should, but he doesn't. This is kind of a rebuke. He should have already done this, but he doesn't. But even when Daniel enters into the scene, Belshazzar seems to doubt that any of this isn't true. Because 14, he says, well, I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. 16, well, I've heard you could give interpretations. And now, if you can read the writing, then do so. It's a lot of I've heards and ifs. Saying, well, you know, people are talking and tell me that maybe this could be true, but I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't really doubt it. Or I really do doubt it. And maybe if you can do this, then do it. It appears not only did he ignore Daniel before, he's still, even now, with the prophet in front of him, ignoring the fact or doubting the fact that this guy could be a prophet of God. And I love Daniel's response to him when he hears, you know, first this, this kind of insult, but also the possible rewards that he could get. And Daniel just says, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to somebody else. Not interested. Don't really want it. Don't really need it. That's cute. That's fine. Um, but I still will interpret for you. I, I'm not just interpreting it because I'm here to get rewards and riches. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to the interpretation. But before he does so, he gives the king a history lesson. He reminds the king of things that he's forgotten. Things that he should have known, but he seems to have not paid attention to. Verse 8, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Let's pause and talk about Nebuchadnezzar, your father here, if you haven't noticed it already. Now, I, I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar is his biological father. Okay, in, in, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, there's not really a word for grandfather or great-grandfather. The word father has a really wide semantic range. It's the same word all the time. So it can be father, it can be ancestor, you know, fathers is in your fathers before you, much like the Bible often say too, hey, your father's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It, it's being used like that, I think. But nevertheless, he should know who Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebuchadnezzar, one of your ancestors. Remember Nebuchadnezzar the Great? Okay, the greatest king? At any point in time here, most of the kings before you have only ruled a couple years. You remember the one who kind of built Babylon, who built the hanging gardens, who built our massive temple, who did all of these things? Yeah, that Nebuchadnezzar, you remember how awesome and amazing and mighty he was? That was only because of God. That was only because of God. That wasn't because he was so smart. It wasn't because he was a military genius. He just goes on to remind him that this only, only happened because God gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingship and greatness and glory and majesty in 18. And not only has Belshazzar forgotten this fact, Daniel goes on to remind him what else he's forgotten in 20. But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, when he started to think that he had done this all himself, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory taken from him. He recounts the story from Daniel chapter 4 that we talked about last week. Where Daniel comes and he warns and rebukes Nebuchadnezzar and says, Hey, you need to repent or God is going to send you and you're going to be mad and wander like an animal for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar says, No, nah, I'm good. Don't think I will. And so God's word comes true. 
But then he finally repents. He learns and God restores his kingdom to him. When until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it who he will in 21. Okay, when he acknowledged that he wasn't the king, God was the king, then he got to have everything back. Nebuchadnezzar had to be punished until he learned his lesson. It seems like Belshazzar has forgotten what the lesson was. He forgot the moral of the story, hasn't been paying attention. Verse 22 really is the key verse, I think, to this whole passage. And you knew, you his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You should have known better. You have heard what God did to kings who didn't learn their lesson, who have not listened to God, who have not listened to his prophets, have not heeded his word, have not listened to his warnings. You heard it what the consequences of pride would be. You knew what would happen if you don't acknowledge God as being the only God, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And that's not enough. You've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. It's not just that you decided and refused to acknowledge and serve God, but you mocked him and you worshiped other gods instead. Gods who can't hear you, who aren't listening, who can't pay attention, who don't care about your prayers. They're just wood and rock and they're just, they're sitting there. You're talking to yourself. But the God who does hear you, the God whose breath is in your hands, he can close that hand and take your breath away in a moment if he wants to. That God, in whom are all your ways, that you're only king because he allowed it, not because you're so smart. That God has heard your blasphemy, and it is his hand you see writing on the wall to send you a message. And what was that message? Well, we'll get into some of the specifics of these words um, on Wednesday night, if you, you want to come back and hear more about that. Um, but the basic idea is right here. It's, you don't have to study Aramaic or Hebrew to get it, because Daniel spells it out for us, because Belshazzar didn't get it either. But these words, the tekel, mene, mene, tekel, parson, it just means, or translates, you know, number, number, weighed, and divided. It says, Belshazzar, you and your character have been weighed on God's scale and been found deficient. Not in your own scale, but you've been weighed, 28-7, in the balances and been found wanting. And your days are numbered. And the number is repeated twice to show that it's sure and this number is coming. Your number is actually already up. And we know at the end of the story, it's that very night his number is up. He only has hours. Not months, not years, not weeks, not days. Minutes. Until his number is up. And it's divided. Because his kingdom is going to be taken from him and given to others. Not even to other Babylonians, to the Medes and the Persians in 28. Because Belshazzar has failed to heed the word of God, to listen to what he has said, he's failed to learn from the stories of all that God has done, not just in all of the world, not just all through his people in Israel, but he's failed to listen to what God has done in his own kingdom in Babylon, in his own midst. He didn't have to go far to hear the stories of God, and he has not listened. And because of that, he will face the judgment of God here and now. He should have known better not to repeat those ancestor sins. 
He also should have known better that this is the moment that you fall on your face and beg for mercy. When a prophet comes and tells you, here's the judgment of God because of your sin, the proper response is repentance. Proper response is pretty much always repentance, but that especially is the moment that you really need to repent. Because it says over and over in His Word that if you repent, He will relent from judgment. And we have plenty of time, or times where people do repent. Judgment comes and says, this is the judgment, and they beg for mercy, and God relents and says, okay, because you've repented, I'm going to hold back. But how does He respond? 29, well, Belshazzar gave command, Daniel's clothed in purple, chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation made about him, he can be the third ruler in the kingdom. He really is acting as if he doesn't even believe what Daniel said is true. Because if he does, this isn't how you would respond. It's just, okay, well, you know, I don't really like that interpretation, I think, but, you know, I'm not worried about it anymore. So, thank you. Here's some rewards. You know, let's get, let's get this party picked back up again. And these rewards he gives Daniel or that Daniel doesn't want are just so worthless. Okay, it's like getting promoted to CEO before the company goes bankrupt and everybody gets laid off, including you. That's the promotion that Daniel gets. Oh, great. Thank you. I'm going to enjoy this for about 20 more minutes. That's what it does. Well, why? Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, about 62 years old. He dies that very night. He dies a fool and in his ignorance. He dies as someone who should have known better but didn't. And we know, too, that the Medes and the Persians um, attacked Babylon in a sneak attack that very night. There was almost no battle. They just waltzed right in. We'll talk more about that on Wednesday. But how often do we act the same as Belshazzar? Even as Christians... Right? Even if you've been a Christian for most of your life or for decades, how often do we... We know God's Word, we know the stories, and yet we don't listen to it. We ignore it. And there's something inherently dangerous about reading God's Word. Because when we read it, God's Word is really, it's a mirror. And when we read it, it forces us to look at ourselves and examine our own lives. And often what we see is our sin and how far we fall short of the standard of God. And when you read it and you see that, you then have a choice. Just like when you look in the mirror and you don't look so great, you got a choice. Well, is there something I can do to fix this or am I going to ignore it and just walk away? That's what James talks about in his description, right, of James 1.23, that why you should be doers of the word, not just hearers only. It doesn't profit you anything if you hear the words of God read and you listen and you take good notes and then you close your Bible and you go away and you don't do anything. You don't actually live like it is true. It doesn't do Belshazzar any good to hear the story of Nebuchadnezzar recounted to him if it doesn't lead him to actually repenting, if he just continues on in his sin. And it's dangerous to read God's Word because the more that you know and then you don't obey and you ignore, the greater judgment is that's coming without God's grace. We're not meant to read this book to just get some interesting facts to hear some cool words we didn't know before and then move on with our day and live as if God isn't really alive and true. We must read His Word. We should read His Word. I put value in reading His Word. I believe in it so much. I read whole chapters every single week, even though I talk to other pastors sometimes and they tell me that's weird. Why are you doing that? Well, I read it because it matters, but we have to read it and then actually do something about it. We have to live differently. We need to live like we believe this book is really important. 
Not just important enough to come and to sit on a Sunday and hear about it, but important enough to actually try and apply to our lives. That we listen to God's Word, and then you prove that you listened because you did something. Right? When I'm talking to my, my son's little Calvin who's three, and I say, son, did you listen to me? Oh, yeah, I, listening, Daddy. I hear, well, no, okay. If you were listening to me, you would have done what I told you to do. Don't tell me you're listening. That doesn't mean anything if you're not acting like you're, if you're not doing something with it. But so often that's what we do, right? We're, we're like somebody who hears the servant on the Good Samaritan and then passes a car wreck on the side of the road and just goes home because they've got somewhere important to be. Or somebody who, who reads the Sermon on the Mount and how we're supposed to love our enemies and then goes and then starts spewing hatred about people that they don't like 10 minutes later. Or we come on Sunday morning, we read stories in the book of Daniel, and we walk out and we repeat the same mistakes as Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. This shouldn't be so. For followers of Jesus, we should know better than to do that. There's a problem, isn't it? That we all fail over and over and over again. We should know better than yet we, we don't. We continually fall short of the glory of God. That's why our last thing we need to know better on your, your blank is that we should know better or we should know not to doubt God's grace. We should know not to doubt His grace because we fail over and over and over again and then it can make us think, well, maybe other Christians aren't failing as much as I am, so maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I don't really have the grace of God. Maybe I don't really deserve it as if we deserve anything. But as Christians, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's one of the things in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's a declaration. We as Christians do not believe in self-improvement. That if we just work hard enough and try a little more and focus and act better, that eventually we will be so good that we'll get to go into heaven because our good will outweigh the bad. We don't believe in salvation by merit. We believe, that, uh, we believe that there is forgiveness for sinners and that forgiveness doesn't come from ourselves and just loving ourselves enough and then it's fine. It comes and is only given by the grace of God. Our forgiveness doesn't depend on us, but it depends on the blood of Jesus that ran red and washed our sins and washes us white as snow. We don't believe that if we fail this week, our salvation is in danger. We believe our salvation rests on Jesus, not on what we do or don't do. We don't believe that perfection can be attained by us, but that Jesus attained perfection for us. That Jesus did what we could not do. That he was the perfect lamb who perfectly obeyed all of the commands of God all the time. He succeeded where we failed every single day. He was the only person in human history who has lived without sin, fully God and fully man. And because of his success, he was able to be a sacrifice for us. And where the sacrifice of blood, of goats and lambs and cows failed, his blood succeeded. And we don't have to make any more sacrifices. Not because we've stopped sinning, but because forgiveness has already been attained. And his sinlessness is credited to our account. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be found righteous, not because of how awesome we are, not because we know better and we start acting better, but because of Jesus. But the problem is that every time we fail, we can start to doubt God's grace. 
Every time we, we sin or we do something that we know better than to do, we wonder if God really is going to forgive us again. I mean, how do you feel in those moments when that happens? I know for me, I can start to beat myself up. I can start to want to just hit myself on the head. I know better than to leave drinks right on the edge of the counter where both of my kids can now reach them because they're going to fall and then it's going to get everywhere. And it's, then it, but yet it happens. And then I start feeling terrible. Why would I do that? I'm such an idiot. You know, that's the 20th time I've done this this month. Why do I keep doing this? We can do that about small things. We can also do that about our sin and start to wonder, man, maybe God thinks I'm an idiot. Maybe God loves other people, but he can't love me. This has to be so annoying that I keep doing the same thing. And now here I am asking him forgiveness again. I've been asking forgiveness for this for 60 years. Surely he's going to get sick of this. The reality is that Jesus died for sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. I didn't come for those who are really good. I came for those who need grace and are stuck in their sins without any hope. And the reality is no one deserves grace. That's why it's called grace. None of us. Okay, if you somehow, somehow made it through all of next week and came back next Sunday and didn't sin a single time, you still would need grace just as much then as you do now today because none of us can earn it. But the point of grace is that it is never ending and it covers all of our sins. That every morning, every day, when you fail again, there is grace waiting for repentant sinners. I love Lamentations 3.23. Reminds us that His mercies are new every morning. It's good that they're new every morning because every morning I'm going to fail again. Every morning I'm going to do something that I should have known better than to do, but I do again. Every morning I'm going to worship another idol, but His mercies are new. Every morning we will fail, but His mercies are new. You will do things that you know not to do, but His mercies are new. You will forget the stories of Scripture. You will forget to learn their lessons, but His mercies are new. We won't apply what He's told us to do. We will sin and fall on our faces again and again, but His mercy is new and His grace is never-ending. I promise you that you will fail later today. Before this day is over, you are going to sin once again and violate the rules and the laws of God. And when you do, there is the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus waiting for you. If you just fall on your face and admit that you need it. Don't doubt the grace of God. Don't doubt that it's for other people and it's not for you. Because His grace is never-ending and His mercies are new every single morning. And there is always grace for sinners who admit that they are sinners and that they need His grace. The only people who don't get His grace are those who don't ask for it. Who, like Belshazzar, think that they don't need it. They can just do whatever they want. We believe in the forgiveness of sins for sinners as Christians. Nebuchadnezzar found grace because he humbled himself and he asked for it. Belshazzar did not. But grace was available for both of them. Don't doubt God's grace. In summary this morning, you know, we should, we should know not to worship idols. And we should know to listen to God's word. But when we don't know what we do, when we fail, we should know to not doubt God's grace. And we should know that His grace is there again and again and again. Do not doubt that God loves you. No matter how much you get wrong, 
no matter how much you fail, no matter how great your sin seems to be, the blood of Jesus is greater still, and there is grace and forgiveness available to any who want it. Come to Jesus, ask for it, and you will find it. We close this in prayer, invite our worship team to come up and lead us once again. God, I thank you that your grace is never-ending. Lord, I pray that you would daily give us a greater picture of how awesome and incredible your grace and your love for us is. Lord, would you help us? We are sinners who will leave this place hopefully filled in awe and wonder of your love and how much gracious you are towards us and and how we should live as if that's true. And yet, as the day goes on, we are all going to fail and we'll start to doubt your love and doubt your word and sin in so many ways. Lord, would you pour out your grace even more on us in those moments. And in that moment, when we find ourselves doubting if you really love us, doubting if you can really forgive us again, Lord, would you remind us your mercy is our new every morning. And would you help us to not doubt your grace. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our God in song one more time. And here's the benediction from the God who shed his blood for you from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.